Good day, everyone. Uh, today is our latest uh, podcast with uh, a unique brand and a special leader, a special CEO. We're, we like to focus on uh, emerging brands and exciting new creativity at this fashion uh, network uh, luxury insight podcast series you're doing. And I'm very happy to welcome into the studio today, Mark Shaya who is the uh, CEO of Maison Francis Courtijan. Am I pronouncing it right? You are. It's CEO and co-founder, actually, of Maison Francis Courtijan. Yeah. Okay. And for the benefit of the uninitiated, uh, um, Francis Courtijan has been possibly the single most exciting niche perfume brand and, and project that's come along in the last decade. And... Um, Let's begin at the beginning and find out how you and Francis met and what gave the idea of creating this project. First, I'm very happy to be here and to be given the opportunity, certainly to bring some clarity. Uh, and, and this might be for many, I think, an educational moment. Uh, Francis Kurjan, and it's Kurjan, the second K is silent, so it's easy. <laughs> Francis Kurjan is a creative talent. Uh, he's a perfumer, one of the most celebrated perfumers of our time. Yet, at the time we both met, no one really knew who and what a perfumer is. I've met him uh, at a dinner party, casually asking him, like we chit-chatted before the beginning of the podcast, what do you do in life? Where are you coming from? And I've learned that he was the man behind Jean-Paul Gaultier Le Mans, which my mom gave me uh, at my birthday uh, when I was 18. He was the man behind several perfumes that I already had in my collection. And I looked at him with big eyes, round <laughs> eyes, and I said, how come I, I don't even know your name? Isn't it Jean-Paul Gaultier that, that does the scent? And so this was the opportunity for me to realize that there was something very unique and something very wrong. That there was a full category of people that was totally hidden behind the curtain. And it was a unique situation where talent could only express itself under the strict or even the very strict guidance of marketing, which is not the case when you're an architect which is not the case when you're a composer, which is not the case when you are a painter uh, or a fashion designer. Yet perfumers were hidden behind the curtains, giving their talent, lending their nose, as we say, uh, to others, uh, creating great sense. And no one would even know uh, who they are. So there, there was in the initiation of our story and collaboration, there was from my end, something that could be linked to activism, wanting the truth to come out and wanting things with passion to mm -hmm. change. Uh, and that's what, you know, that was the, the beginning of the story. It was a surprise. Um, let's talk about you for a minute. You, um, uh, your training was uh, beginning with Ernst and Young, you know, one of the most important. Don't make that face. Huh? Don't make that face. Uh, <laughs> 
one of the most important consulting groups in the world and a famous training guard for, for executives. But before that, where did you first get the idea of working managerially in the creative world? So as a child, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and I wanted to dance. I wanted to draw. Mm. Uh, I loved to use my hand to create things. But in my country, you, as a man, you mm. could choose between a career of becoming a doctor, an engineer. I mean, in my family and in my uh, educational uh, surrounding, you could be a doctor, an engineer, uh, a finance person working at a bank, a trader, mm -hmm. a CEO of a business company, work in trade. Art is for the private sphere. And my dad pushed me away from my initial dream, which was to be an architect, uh, even a dancer that was not even possible at the time. And so... I focused on math uh, and I went against my nature, yet I acquired abilities that were innate, but were under maybe developed when I was a child. And I had to go into math and finance, etc. So I went to pursue traditional uh, business studies, thinking that that would bring me the most freedom. Doing finance was easier than becoming a doctor or an engineer, mm -hmm. uh, because then you can end up doing whatever you wanted. After business school, I went to EY because it was considered at the time as a second MBA. Mm -hmm. People would go there to learn, and mm -hmm. I've learned a lot. It was uh, back in 1997. Where was this? Here? It was in France. It, in was, France, in France. Yeah. it was back in 97. For those who understand consulting, it was pre-Sarban Oxley which is a moment that totally changed the industry. Sarban Oxley was the Enron uh, scandal when, when a big company in the US did fraud and mm -hmm. it, it did put a very bad, uh, it, it did put the, the whole audit and finance industry at the time under a very bad uh, uh, advertising. Because they had approval of the accounts and exactly. accepted this behavior exactly. when they should not have. But yeah. before that, as an auditor, I could do so many things and uh -huh. I've learned you know, finance, I've learned uh, strategy, I've learned marketing, and I had a very diverse career from, from becoming an auditor, to doing M&A, to doing due diligences, to doing IPOs at the NASDAQ in the US, uh, running mm -hmm. a TV channel in Qatar, where I was displaced <laughs> for two years, starting up a TV channel for uh, the Qatar Foundation, Al Jazeera Children Channel. So it was a very diverse career, and it was about that time that I met Francis. I was coming back from Qatar, a long two, two and a half years assignment, and we've met, we became close friends. And at EY, I always felt that despite a very fast career, changing roles every two years, being early promoted every two years, becoming a senior manager in five years instead of 10, I was still lacking something. I couldn't feel that this was mm. enough. And what I was lacking was creativity, basically. Mm -hmm. Although when you design a strategy, or a career path or a solution for a customer, creativity is at play, but it's a different kind of creativity. And so at EY, I had a real estate company. Huh. I was an entrepreneur while I was at EY. And then I started working same time as EY with Francis. First on different project, building his website, uh, advising him on listening to him, listening at his ideas that he wanted to move from behind the curtain to the center of the stage. He uses the parallel with movie making, where he says, as an actor, I want to move to behind the camera and not only be in front of the camera and explore 360, mm. uh, the, the, the full fledge of my, my universe. And I would advise him on what to do, how to 
what action would be positive in terms of his strategy, things like creating the first website. It was back in 2003 when we started MaisonFrancisCurgent.com. It was the early stages of the internet. And already you began retailing it? We retailing not, it? It, was, it was more a window to present, to, to present and to show mm. consumers mm. and people what a perfumer does. Mm. His dream, for example, mm. at the time we met, one of his dreams, we, we were in Japan, and he would tell me that his dream was to send the fountains of Versailles because at the time of Louis XIV, mm. they would throw big parties in the gardens and sometimes this, the, the ambient smell wasn't that great and they would end up putting perfume in the fountains and through the water jets, the, the scent would spread across. Which, yes. And his dream was to do that. His dream was to do a scented bubble installation. To me, that was, it was full of meaning. It was full of sense because it allowed him hmm. to express the perfume with something that people can relate to because you cannot touch perfume, you cannot see perfume, you cannot hear perfume. And we all, we are taught to explore mm. our senses except smelling. No one teaches you how to smell. You recognize food, you recognize fruits, etc. Mm. But no one teaches you how to combine scents. Perfumers learn that at school, but this is something that is a little bit under leverage uh, for us as, as mankind. So in order to show the full depth of his talent, mm. putting fragrance as part of wider, bigger, more beautiful art installation mm. was a way to show that perfumers are not simply chemists. They were not simply people sitting at a lab smelling a little blotter, trying to create a, mm. a smell that is nice that they are full-fledged creators. Which he has since done, of course. He's done installations in Florence, in Paris, and many countries now. So he started back, it was in 2006, the first time in Versailles, uh, mm. for the an event called the Great Evening Waters, mm. uh, where he transformed the Bosquet de l'Orangerie, which is a, uh, an orange uh, f uh, an orange uh, tree uh, garden. Uh, he transformed that into a huge fluorescent orange, uh, by putting liquid in it that turned the water uh, into fluorescent orange and, <laughs> and, a, and a very extraordinary smell of orange blossom. Mm. And you would enter Versailles Garden and smell orange blossom as if you were somewhere on the shores of the Mediterranean or in Lebanon or, or wherever you have, you know, this very specific uh, smell. And it was beautiful. And then for two or three years in a row, he did an installation at Le Bosquet des Trois Fontaines, uh, which is the three fountains bosquet that he turned into Krypton, the planet for of Superman, uh, with smoke going out, uh, weird music uh, uh, that played on two words, chute d'eau, which means waterfall in French. Uh, it was beautiful. Uh, and people were totally astounded by it. He did a scented bubble installation in Versailles. And then in 2010, uh, another scented bubble installation in, in at Le Grand Palais in Paris, and so on and so forth. Mm. And the um, What's been very interesting uh, in the industry for me, because I've been following luxury for 30 years, in the last 10 or 15 years, has been the emergence of uh, indie perfumes to me, but generally niche and often quite expensive and often very conceptual. I mean, Frederick Mal or my friends at Memo, there have been several others. Why do you think there is this, being this major change in the market or change in, in people's demand of, for, for something like that? If you go back to Paris, which was and is still the capital of perfumery at a global level, wow. uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, you could buy your perfume at a perfume house that yeah. carried the name of a perfumer. Yeah. And with time, 
fashion used fragrance as an accessory that could be provided to the greater number mm. while fashion was limited in its distribution mm. using the aura of fashion to to generate sales through fragrance at a very global level and mass level this is why we call it mastige which is the combination of prestige yeah the prestige of fashion and mass the mass distribution of fragrance and fashion brands began to dominate the, the market they became the, and that's uh, how the, the majority of sales were through fragrance and that's how perfumers disappeared yeah because they started working for labs that would receive marketing briefs from bigger fashion houses or licensing houses that owned the the right to use a fashion brand's name in order to sell fragrance and this whole industry produced beautiful scents it wasn't at all negative we've seen some extraordinary scent emerge it educated consumer it made fragrance more democratic but at some stage at some stage when you create a scent to please the widest biggest number of people it you would hit a a stage where you're no longer very creative, no longer disruptive. So what happened is that in the uh, end of the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s, hmm. we've seen the acceleration in fragrance distribution with travel retail operators. You can find fragrance at airports, big chains, you know, like Sephora, Douglas, Mariano hmm. was conquering the world very successfully. And so you, we had a unique conjunction of three facts. One, a distribution opportunity where department stores, their destination, their not proximity, uh. could no longer compete with proximity perfumeries or with chains like Sephora, Douglas, Mariano. So they had to delist the brands that were carried at Sephora, Douglas, Mariano and look for unique brands that would mean something to their customer, mm. a customer that is going to Galerie Lafayette or taking her car or his car to go to Neiman Marcus and have a different experience. So one, there was the emergence of a distribution channel that was non-existent before. Two, entrepreneurs, people working in marketing, people working at big groups that started to see the limit or to get frustrated by the limit of wanting to design mm. something that could please a maximum amount of people. They wanted to be able to express their creativity, uniqueness, bring something different to the table. And three, most importantly, customer demand. A lot of people were looking for something more unique, more elevated. And because for nearly 80 years, the whole industry focused on mastiche segment, there was a very nice place at the top. When you talk about the extraordinary limited distribution, luxury, as in beautiful product, craftsmanship, etc., in fragrance, this did not exist. And so we saw entrepreneurs starting their companies, what we call commonly the niche segment, uh, and distributing that at department stores or independent perfumeries that did not want to belong to a chain like Douglas or Mariano. And finally, customers were very enthusiastic about it and, and wanting to uh, ex to express their uniqueness through sense that you could not find on a big number of people. Now, um, several of these companies, not all, but a majority of them have eventually been bought or allied with major groups. 
yourself included. Five years ago, you entered, even before that, you had entered in an agreement with the LVMH, I believe. They bought a, a small stake. And eventually, five years ago, more or less, uh, uh, they acquired... No, no, it was back in 2017. Uh, 17. Well, five, so five years ago, five years we, ago, we yeah. entered into a partnership with, with LVMH where they acquired a majority stake in our company. Francis ah. and I remained and we we are still shareholders yeah. and we brought the company into a beautiful group that has enabled us to mature, grow uh, and develop. But you are right. Five yeah. years ago, we've seen the industry dynamics shift. Mm -hmm. But before talking about that, I want to also express that when we started the Maison, mm -hmm. we said clearly at, since the beginning that we were not necessarily creating a niche concept because we're not a concept. We're a fragrance house that carries the name of a living designer. <laughs> and, and there's a big difference. A, a, a lot of, so the way I look at the market and I think the market is full of beautiful brands that I respect, but I can acknowledge that, that some of us are creative driven while some others are marketing driven. And I see us as a creative driven company where creativity sits at the middle of everything and influences everything. Our marketing at Maison Francis Cajon is at the service of creativity. And I would even say it's at the service of a creative genius called Francis Cajon. It's the same in fashion. When you think about it, when Saint Laurent starts his own Maison Fashion mm. and Couture, it's called Yves Saint Laurent. And everything derives from the vision of Yves Saint Laurent. Mm. It's exactly mm. the same at Maison Francis Cajon. Everything derives from the vision of the perfumer. So since day one, we said we're not a niche brand. We are a luxury, epony luxury eponymous fragrance house mm -hmm. where, lux where luxury stands in the extraordinary. Extraordinary genius of creativity, extraordinary craftsmanship, and extraordinary customer journey. One, th one thing you're um, similar to a designer in is many of the better designers, not, not many of them, but a certain number of them, have their own brand and then work for a major house. Um, and uh, in a sense, as Karl Arkvich would say, he was always a gun for hire that, you know, uh, in in the best possible sense of the term. Uh, so Francis, his, his business model in a way is a bit of both because it's his own brand, eponymously named, and it's also as a creative input into... Other fashion, other lux other luxury perfume brands, or even how does that operate? The the two elements. Well, you've you've named Karl Lagerfeld, uh, yeah. whom I deeply respect, and uh -huh. was one of the greatest you know designers of the the, the past uh, the past 40, 45 years. As a creator, you don't just sit on a table and say, "Now uh -huh. I'm going to create." You find inspiration everywhere. When Francis has been working with brands since he was 23. As I said, he was 24 when he created Jean-Paul Gaultier Le Mal. Uh -huh. When he works with Jean-Paul Gaultier, when he works with, today he is the in-house perfumer as well as Christian Dior. Uh, he's in charge of the, the creative direction in fragrances for uh, our sister company, mm. uh, Christian Dior. When he creates for Maison Christian Dior, he sits in the DNA of Maison Christian Dior. He thinks about Christian Dior and he tries to interpret with his own talent and his own image, emotion what a scent for Maison Christian Dior would be the same way Carl would work with Chanel and Fendi and sometimes does collaboration with H&M and sometimes work with his eponymous brand. With us, Francis, 
while we started our maison was still working. He worked with Burberry, creating My Burberry, Mr. Burberry, continued his collaboration with Eddie Saab, continued, he created a scent for Kenzo. So he was always while working for our maison where he talks to us freely about his own vision of his own art. When he works with an, another brand, he is giving his talent to express the emotion of that brand. So there it's totally, you know, when you give the example of fashion, yeah. uh, Kim Jones today yeah. is working with two companies yeah. and it works perfectly well. Francis Carjon is working with two companies and it works perfectly well. Uh, when he is doing Francis Carjon, to find the DNA, it's a very interesting question because as co-founders, uh, the DNA is inside us. And, and one of the power of being part of LVMH is the ability for people to help us put this on paper. And, and, and eventually it's, we narrowed down who we are to four or maximum five simple facts. One, we are perfumer before anything else. Francis Kerjean is a perfumer. So we are creative driven and we are perfumer before anything else. Two, we are a Parisian perfumer. You know, the, the, the industry has a long relationship with Grasse and you see perfumers from, you know, family owned businesses that go from one here to, I don't like to say father and son because it's very obsolete, uh, <laughs> but I like to say, you know, from one here to another, Francis is a, is a urban Parisian perfumer. He's not born in grass. He was not educated in grass and he brings something very urban, very modern contemporary. So Paris is an inspiration, not the Paris of the, you know, postcard and the Eiffel Tower, but the way we live in Paris. When we think about chic, we think about Parisian thing, uh, chic. When we talk about a beautiful person, we talk about a beautiful Parisian person. When we, when you look at our, our visual identity, Paris is a source of inspiration. Our stoppers are in zinc, like the rooftops of Paris. We use hot embossed, uh, uh, gold embossed hot stamping with gold as a tribute to the domes of the monuments and so on and so forth. So Paris is a full element of, of our DNA. Three, something very unique is, unique and not, not so much anymore, but when we came with that vision, it was slightly disruptive. It is the freedom to choose. It is the idea of a fragrance wardrobe, not a marketing fragrance wardrobe where you create a dress, a tuxedo or a suit. It is the idea that as men and women, we have different personalities. We, we are not, you cannot single me down and I cannot single you down to one persona. Sometimes you're a businessman, sometimes you want to have fun, sometimes you want to play sport, sometimes you want to be dramatically loud. All this can be expressed through fragrance. And so we offer through Maison Francis Cardin, a fragrance wardrobe of emotion where we give our customer the ability to match their personality with the scent that they love. And so that's another aspect of our DNA. Mm. And last but not least, it's the artistic conversation, not collaboration. The choice of wording here is very important to me. <laughs> conversation is because talent has always talked to each other. You've mentioned uh, Alexandre Matussi, you've mentioned mm -hmm. Alexandre Vautier. We're talking about Francis Cardin. He actually knows them. They mm. talk, you know, they, they exchange. It's like when you go back to Paris at the early of the 20th century and you know that Peggy Guggenheim left the US to go live in Venice, but she was friends with Picasso, with Pollock, who was mm. friends with, uh, you know, Einstein and Nijinsky and Stravinsky. All of these people, when you look at them eight years after, you say, oh my God, they were all friends. 
But at the time, if you were, so what, and what I love about conversation is that one plus one equals three. It is not me going to someone saying, I want you to do this for me. It is more having Francis converse, talk, and something greater, something meaningful will come out. And we do this a lot through the artistic collaborations, uh, through installations, mm -hmm. through uh, ventures. It could be something that eventually becomes a product. Mm -hmm. And that was the story of our famous Bacarouge 540. It was not supposed to be a scent that goes into a bottle that we sell to consumer. It was supposed to be a collaboration for the 250th anniversary of the House of Baccarat. Mm -hmm. And it was a limited edition of 250 handcrafted bottles. That was it, full stop. But because the scent was so extraordinary, we've decided under a lot of demand and a lot of pressure from our partners globally to release it under Maison Francisco Jean in partnership with Baca. But initially, it was, a, it was a, an artistic well, conversation. Okay. Um, so this is our DNA. At the time uh, when uh, you made the deal with um, LVMH, um, I remember we interviewed just five years ago. Um, and at the time you said something like you had more or less 500 sales points internationally. You weren't in China. You weren't in Latin America. You had quite a few of your own uh, freestanding stores. You were very active with me with Marcus. What's the situation now? The same and better. <laughs> the same, but better. Uh, we moved from 500 to 200 to 750. Okay. So we, we're very, very limited in terms of our distribution. And I, as a CEO, I like to focus on a limited number of doors where I can offer my customer an extraordinary journey. Our mission is to bring joy to our customer by providing them an uplifting journey through fragrance. And this cannot be done anywhere everywhere. It can be done in certain places such as beautiful department stores, such as beautiful distribution points, independent or chains, but also in our own boutiques. So we've grown by 250 doors, but in terms of revenues, uh, we've grown, I think, 14 times. Wow. I think 14 times. At the end of the year, we would have multiplied our sales by 14. What, but, what, what are your annual sales now? We do not disclose that, but what I can tell you is that we are the number one brand Omni uh, at Neiman Marcus, and I'm talking three axes. So we are the number one brand Omni at, number two brand Omni at Saks, very close to becoming number one. I think by the end of the year, we will be number one, number one at Bloomingdale's. And more generally, we are in the top three in all of the doors where we are. So we, we focus on leadership. We focus on building our footprint in our distribution channel rather than opening, opening, opening doors. So we focus on our existing if, network. If you multiply by 14 times, we're talking about a, a nine-figure number then. Are, are, we, are we at that sort of stage? An, a nine-figure number? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, over, we are, we are comfortably over that. We are comfortably over 100 million in net sales, but I'm not talking retail. I'm talking net sales. Retail is is obviously higher because the we, platform. It the, might be like a quarter a, of a billion, maybe even. Yeah. I, at retail, I do not disclose. <laughs> I do not disclose. That, <laughs> All right. Okay. But, but I can tell you that uh, we have very productive counters. Yeah. Uh, and. Above all, what I like is that productivity is the consequence of the experience. We have very talented staff. We have very dedicated teams. And we pride ourselves of giving the best 
of what we can to our to our customers. Tell me a bit about the look of your stores. They're quite specific. Tell me what was your thinking when you began the first one and how has that evolved? The very first one was our boutique on 5 Rue d'Alger, which is very dear to Francis and I. It was a very tiny shop, 25 mm. square meter. Uh, the owner before us was uh, an old very kind man that was about to retire and he was fixing keys and shoes. He was a shoe fixer and he would uh, copy duplicate keys. And we've rented that, not knowing that we were going to create the maison. First, we rented the boutique. Francis came to me and said, my cousin have this opportunity. And I said, let's take it at the end of the day, even as a storage room in this part of Paris on very oh. close to Rue Saint-Honoré. It's a beautiful opportunity. Mm. So we, we rented the boutique before starting the company. Huh. And then when we decided oh, to, yeah, yeah, and, and once we decided to, to, to co-found Maison Francis Curjean, our architects came with a, with a very disruptive idea. The boutique is only 25 square meter, yet we've decided to put a window. Uh, we, we decided to create, to cut it in half, to dedicate 12.5 square meter to retail and to dedicate 12.5 square meters to joy to dream by creating a gallery and by creating this window that was inspired to us from Francis's childhood. He would always tell me, as a child, I would go to the Armenian church near Avenue Montaigne, and I would love at Christmas time when my mom would walk me down Avenue Montaigne and I would look at all of these beautiful windows. And that's joy. This is an uplifting experience. We created the mini Paris that was animated uh, in a small shop that literally brought smile, brought joy to every person that walked into the boutique. So that was our very first one. It, since it has very strong Parisian codes, zinc, the pirate from uh, Gates, uh, oh, yes, pa yes, pa yes, Parisian, yes. Parisian Gates. Uh, and today we've, we've, with, with time, the company is, is about to turn, uh, for, we just turned 13 uh, and we've just released our new identity. But it's, it is still distinct in the fact that it is not black or white. As you know, in, in cosmetics, you see a lot of black. Uh, we came with very specific codes that celebrated light, materials that are inspired also from Paris, Paris stone. Uh, when you look at the Hosman building facade, we use this Paris stone with Maison Fondée en 2009, Maison founded in 2009, engraved on the Paris stone, like when you look at signature of yes, architects. Of in, architects, in the, in, it's in, amazing, in Paris, it's unique. Uh, yeah. we, we use uh, light oak because it's a very noble and nice material, but that's also linked to the Paris parquet flooring. We use marble as, as a link to the marble of the chimneys. But above all, what we want our architectural design to convey is comfort, is light. We love light. And the place where architecture serves the purpose of you discovering beautiful sense. So I don't want my architecture to become a wow factor to overtake the, the experience yeah. and become a marketing factor. My architecture is there to provide you with a very comfortable experience at the service of you going through our fragrances. It sounds to me that Francis now has three jobs, which is quite a lot. He has your own house, obviously. He has Dior. And then does he still occasionally operate, create perfumes for other not anymore. Not now that he's become he's the creative director of not, not, not anymore. Parfum Christian. No, not anymore. Yeah. Uh, he, he's, uh, for uh, the audience's sake, that happened, what, two years ago? Am I, um, it was announced about a year ago. A year uh, ago? I believe, yes. Yeah. It was announced about a year ago. Uh, so he's, he's totally dedicated to our maison while also working fully with uh, yeah. 
with the Maison Christian Dior and remember, as a creator, you're not sitting on a desk saying, now I'm going to think about a great idea. <laughs> it, is, it is much more, you know, fluid mm. uh, than that. And, and he's immensely invested in our Maison and he's immensely invested uh, in, in Maison Christian Dior. Uh, and for me, it's very important that he finds this creative energy that is, is key to his success and is also key to our success. Um, now, um, we have a lot of young listeners and um, all of them have ambitions to have a career in, in fashion, in luxury. What advice would you give someone hoping to have a career? First a creative or also a managerial or a meeting of the two? So if we are talking about the young audience, the first advice that I would give them is to realize that instant reward is fake news. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint them, but life is not about the instant like that you're going to get on your TikTok post or your Instagram post. It is life is all about deferred reward. Deferred rewards means investment. It means hard work with the aim of achieving something that you can enjoy later. And I see along of the, a lot of the young generation wanting to overachieve immediately, instantaneously. You cannot build beautiful things in a second. Mankind evolution didn't happen overnight. The most beautiful things that we know or that made us evolve positively took years and years and years. So the advice that I give them is one, stick to your dream. It is possible. But then you have to accept that you need to work hard and that your dream is not going to come true overnight. That's very important to, to, to say. Second is to acknowledge that life is unfair. <laughs> because not everyone that goes to the St. Martin schools of design becomes Alexander McQueen. Not everyone that goes to Izipka becomes Francis Jean. But it doesn't mean that not being Francis Jean or Alexander McQueen is not good enough because you can have a fantastic career doing something else, contributing to their success, working al alongside them, becoming an extraordinary visual merchandising person, becoming an extraordinary trade marketing person, becoming a, a very powerful communication or PR person. Our industries are so diverse and rich. The, the variety of jobs that you can get is extraordinary. You can do finance, but do, be, being a CFO of a fragrance company is very different than being the CFO of a car maker. You can do architecture, you can design a house or you can design a store. It's not the same thing. So work hard, give the best of yourself and, and, and show some determination uh, and accept failure because you learn from it. Uh, and that I go back to instant reward. A lot of people, they just decide to stop because it didn't happen over a year. I've seen some people resign after four months just because they are not yet sure that they are getting what they want immediately. And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, now, how do you operate with uh, LVMH? How does that, um, who is your interlocutor? How does that? So we are fully part of the group. It's, uh, oh. it's been, I think, it's not I think, I 
know that it has been the best decision <laughs> that both Francis and yeah. I uh, made back in 2017. We were looking for a greater ensemble, ensemble or, or a group that could help us grow the company, transfer know-how, attract talent. We are part of the perfume and cosmetic division. So I report to the head of the perfume and cosmetic division. Which, uh, who, who is? Stephanie Medioni, a uh, very smart and talented uh, woman who supports us a lot and works yeah. alongside Francis and myself. But it doesn't stop there. Our team is plugged into the division. We are part of you know, communication, uh, uh, sharing of know-how. We are part of uh, our the, the lead architect that help us do our new identity is part of the group. We are uh, offered so many platforms for learning. We are offered talent. We've seen a lot of talent come from other companies mm -hmm. within LVMH to our company. Our company is very successful and attractive to, to talent. So it's an ecosystem where we both thrive, but beyond us and, and most important than us is we see our team thrive. Uh, LVMH, unlike other big corporation uh, that do fragrance and perfume and cosmetic is not an integrated group. You don't have the man in black solving your problems, coming into your companies and, and fixing everything. You are challenged. They help you achieve. If, you're, if you have big ambitions, they can help you deliver on them by giving you the know-how. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to do it yourself. No one's going to come do it for you. I, I imagine from... Um the way your scents smell differently and the price point that they, that they uh, sell at, that the raw materials are very specific to, to your brand. Um, how does that operate? Because in terms of sourcing, did, you, did that change? Did you, how did... A, a lot of things changed in a positive continuity. Nothing changed overnight and yeah. nothing was, there was not like a before and after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a very natural growth process. Mm. Again, our company was multiplied by 12 or 14. So basically we were, when we, we entered LVMH, we were in one room. I remember when Stephanie welcomed us and made her first speech to, uh -huh. to our team, we were 28 people. Today, if I had to put my production team together in a room, 28 people would not fit. It's, it's more than that. So the company has grown and obviously the way we operate has grown. To go back to raw yeah. materials, because yeah. when we talk about raw materials with Francis, mm. we want you to forget the raw material and go into the emotion. Mm. And that's uh, and this is something that people need to understand. A perfumer is not a chemist sitting on a table trying to give you the smell of a rose. Yeah. It is like you say, oh, Picasso is going to paint me yellow. And, and Picasso used the most beautiful, the most pure yellow that comes from India. You, no one says that. You look at a painting from Picasso and you look, <laughs> up, you look at something that is evoking something bigger than you, more powerful, and that takes you elsewhere. This is the reflection of the genius of creativity. This is what a perfumer is doing. So Francis is taking us beyond the ingredient into emotion. That being said, of course, because we are using essential oils and raw materials, mm. they are very important to the quality of the diffusion. They could be very important to the scent structure itself. And we do, uh, we, we, uh, have a historic partner, Takazako, that we were a lab that we work with since we started the company. We work with Accor et Parfum in Grasse, where we have strategic inventory of very beautiful, very rare 
or things that are simply very dear to Francis. It could be mint, but a very important and very fresh mint that he loves. And we can do stocks of that uh, components because we believe it's important for the quality of our products. But I want people to know one thing is that today, because of eight years of marketing, because the perfumer was hidden behind the curtain for very long, because people pretended at some stage that they were perfumers, they even posed smelling a blotter, looking at the camera and smiling as if they were perfumers. Designers you mean frequently. Marketing people, <laughs> mainly. Designers or maybe the artistic directors. Mm. I mean, I can be an artistic director and work work al alongside Jean Nouvel. At the end of the day, I'm not going to pretend I'm Jean Nouvel and I created the museum. I can tell him I want my museum to be inspired from the Sahara. Uh -huh. And I want it to be with high ceilings and I want air and uh -huh. this is what I love. And this is my vision for my art direction. Uh -huh. But at the end of the day, it's Jean Nouvel who will come with his own vision and give me something. And so I would not pose as an architect. And a lot of people have proclaimed a very wrong message, letting people believe that they were perfumers. That is, I hope, now behind us. But there is another very upsetting and troubling uh, element to this industry, is that today you cannot register the scent formula. You cannot, you cannot protect it. I can take the pencil here and draw something on the table. And if it's unique enough and you try to copy it, I can sue you. And I can prevent you from using that pattern because it's my pattern. But Francis Cuyardjean can create something as extraordinary as Baccarat Rouge 540. And I cannot keep people. That chemical mix you can't uh, patent. You c no, what makes you that you cannot patent is the ignorance of the legislative environment and the lack of education of people about how fragrance creation works. Creating a scent is not cooking. <laughs> it is not doing a recipe for food. And even if it was in some instances, I, I can take the example of a three-star Michelin chef that to me is the most extraordinary person in the world. And it's, it is pure art. When I go to Guy Savoie in Paris at La Monnaie and I eat there, it's pure art. But when I eat the artichoke soup, I'm eating it there and no one can really live with it to copy it. And no one can even, you know, I'm not, he's not duplicating it. Yeah. And he is not selling it to the big number, a big number of people. But you did feel clearly that certain people took inspiration far too directly Absolutely. from you. The market is filled with copies of Baccarat Rouge. Oh. Uh, and this is, I mean, we, we can call them inspired oh. by, etc. But we do not have the same ability oh. or the same legal power to to protect anyone from copying a fragrance because of the lack of education. Well, do, well, do I say, I, I mean, I'm so old, I actually covered a court case where Pierre Berger sued Ralph Lauren about 30 years ago in the Tribunal de Commerce in Paris. So I am quite familiar with the idea. It's, it's, it's surprisingly difficult for a young designer or even a big designer to sue another for copying. Uh, and no one wants no. to sue anyone. At and the no one really wants yeah. to sue. It's always that embarrassing. It's a risk, especially if you lose, it looks very bad. And you need to have a big house like, and uh, uh, to be able to pay a lawyer like Saint Laurent does. So, um, uh, whereas in the music industry, it's extremely easy to sue people. Of course. Uh, and 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 we've seen that, um, and 
uh, unfortunately, it's not the same in, in, in the sensory uh, industry. Looking ahead, what do you think the next step is in uh, the perfume creativity and industry? Looking ahead, I, I feel that it will be based on genuinity, the recognition uh, that perfumers are creative talents, full-fledged creative talent. One of my dreams would be to be able to protect perfume creation the same way music is protected and other forms of, not to sue people. My idea is not that I want to sue anyone, <laughs> but as a, again, as a form of activism, uh, that there is a category of creativity mm. that has been undermined wow. over a very long period mm. of time. Uh, this brings complexity, yeah. but in the future, I feel the industry is, become, is going to become more knowledgeable and we'll continue to produce beautiful things, but the perfumer will be at the center of the ecosystem, no longer as a third party provider, but more as uh, someone that is very well known and, and very involved in, in, uh, in, in the way things are, are being done. France, uh, I've just finished uh, four weeks of fashion shows in, in, in New York, London, Milan, and Paris. It's remarkable that, that Paris has maintained this um, premier inter alles, really the first among equals, but very much the first. Uh, and in the fashion industry, similar in the, um, the scent industry in perfume. Uh, why do you think that is? You mean fashion? No, or? for your industry. Oh, for fashion as no, well. Why, why Paris is the capital yeah. of... Uh, but th that's history. It, it's history. It started uh, very, you know, th th I recommend for our listener uh, a very nice book from Elisabeth de Fedo, who's a historian. It's very easy to read. It's beautifully done. And it can give you in about an hour and a half an overview of the history of fragrance. And Paris was the global capital of fragrance in the world. It was linked to, it started with, you know, Marie Antoinette, for example, had her own perfumer. And then we've seen a lot of perfumers in Paris from uh, some big names that have survived time, families like Fragonard, but then other like Guerlain, who's a sister company yes. that started in Paris. You would walk in Paris and you would see perfumers. Coty was a businessman, perfumer, and marketeer that revolutionized our, our industry. But Paris was the capital of beauty in general, whether it, creativity, the les lumières, and, and part of that is, is this creative impulse. Uh, and perfumers were part of this creative impulse. Wearing a scent was seen as a status, was seen as a fashion accessory, was seen as something very special. Uh, and perfumers Although they were supplying their ingredients in grass, they were based in Paris because this is where fashion, they were very close to fashion as well. And this is where everything was happening. And this is the, where they would draw their inspiration from. And that's not going to change. I don't like to say nothing. It's not <laughs> or it is. I don't know. But certain things can last for a very long time as long as the ecosystem is there. And I don't see it today the ecosystem changing. There are other countries where, uh, you know, the industry is, is vibrant. There is an American school of perfumery. There is an Italian school of perfumery with great, immense perfumers. Uh, there is a British school of perfumery. That's fine. But Paris still hold a very special uh, place in the art of creating and manufacturing fragrance. Mark Shaya, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.